If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. I mean, we've legalized it. That's what Citizens United was. It's it's legalized bribery. You can pay a politician as long as you stay within certain rules. You can basically pay a politician to do what you want. It's incredible. And so, yeah, we're right back to where we were. But uh, we've also made populism into a dirty word. We've cut off our own past, you know, so that we can't even think about it anymore. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so as we enter this new year, we kindly ask for your direct support today, if you can, at patreon.com slash greendreamer or at greendreamer.com slash paypal. This week, we have Inauguration Day here in the United States. So in light of that, today's episode is focused on the history of populism in its real form in the United States, as well as the rise of and political challenges faced by our people's movements. How is this related to sustainability and our collective well-being? Well, first of all, if you've been listening to Green Dreamer long enough, you know that we really understand and see everything essentially as being connected and there always being more angles through which we can better understand how we got to where we are today. But more importantly, it is a reality that corporate Wall Street and moneyed interests have infiltrated both of the major parties in the U.S., which is why getting policies passed to support everyday people's well-being, livelihoods, basic rights and empowerment, and also the rapid shift away from extraction and a fossil fuel-dependent energy system has met so much resistance from those powers that are benefiting from the status quo and whose interests are fundamentally at odds with those of the working class and the majority of the people, and our Earth, of course. So Thomas Frank, the author of Listen Liberal, Pity the Billionaire, What's the Matter with Kansas, and his latest book, The People Know, 
is going to tell us all about how workers have come together to stand for their rights historically and how those in power have and still to this day actively suppressed, tarnished and quashed these movements. Wherever you are, please stay safe with the pandemic still going on, but also please stay safe, especially if you're on Turtle Island or in the U.S., residing near any of the state capitals, given the recent far-right insurrection that took place in D.C. And to that point, this conversation was recorded late 2020 before that happened, so do keep that in mind, though Thomas has joined other shows this past few weeks, speaking to what happened through the lens of populism. So if you're interested in diving deeper into his work after this episode, just look his name up online and you'll be able to find more of his commentary on the current events. I'd also been sharing my own thoughts, for example, on social media monopoly censorship and how what happened may lead to the justification of legislation and restrictions against uprisings that will actually work against real people's movements seeking justice and sustainability in the future. So if you're curious about my personal take, you can sign up to my reader-supported Substack newsletter at kamea.substack.com. Anyhow, that was a long introduction. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. It's actually a really, really interesting question because the word populism is used nowadays. People just use it willy-nilly to mean whatever they want, but it's especially used in a, a kind of a negative way to mean uh, sort of um, racist demagoguery. That's the way, like I saw it in the newspaper yesterday being used that way. So people use it as a handy sort of synonym for Trumpism. Uh, they describe all these sort of would-be dictators in Europe uh, using this term. And it's a complete misnomer. It's really, you know, the word was actually invented. It's an American term. You know, it was invented by a bunch of people in my home state of Kansas. And it was invented to describe supporters of a left-wing third-party movement in the late 19th century. They were not racist demagogues. They were quite the opposite. They were not would-be dictators. Again, they were the they were the opposite of that. The whole idea of populism was, um, I mean, one of the important motives of populism was to try to open up the political process and make it more fair, not to restrict it or to crack down on people or to somehow become dictators or something like that. That was not the idea. So it's really fascinating how the word has flipped from meaning one thing to meaning basically the exact opposite thing. And the, the, so what I try to do in this, in this book, the people know, is I try to trace the history of how, among other things, how that word got flipped and who flipped it and why they did that. And it actually is an absolutely fascinating story because it was done deliberately. The original populists, the people who made up the word, were a left-wing third-party movement that was particularly big in my home state of Kansas. That's how I happen to know so much about it. The idea was they were they were a farmer labor party, a sort of typical farmer labor party. They wanted they came out of a kind of farmers union sort of group. Farmers were an enormous part of the population in those days. I think farmers were actually the majority of the American population in those days. And farmers were very poor. And so they came together and started this political party. And the idea of it was to be a party of working class people. That was the, 
objective, you know, they talked about it all the time. It was this great coming together of different working class reform groups. So there were a bunch of uh, unions got involved in it, stuff like that. And their demands were basically to reform capitalism. Like the Labour Party in England, which was started at the same time, or the Labour Party in Australia, or the sort of social democratic parties in Germany and Austria, they all, all of these parties wanted to do the same thing, which is they could see that we had entered this new era of industrial capitalism, and they said we have to reform it. In particular, they looked at it and said, you know, wealth is concentrated in the hands of a, a very small number of millionaires. Uh, there is lavish corruption, you know, political corruption, and there's these incredible monopolies that are basically strangling the livelihood of ordinary people. And populism meant to undo all these things, to use the federal government to intervene in the economy on behalf of ordinary working class people. It was the uh, historians used to regard it as a, a kind of a triumphant movement, even though it didn't last very long, because they introduced the idea of what we now think of as a political left in the United States. By political left, I mean someone who says the government should intervene in the economy on behalf of ordinary people rather than traditional laissez-faire, get government out of out of business, that kind of thing. Populism wanted to do the opposite. That's that, and that's that's what it was. Right. And I mean, a lot of those struggles you mentioned that the farmers had, those are sort of a lot of the same issues that the working class people still face today, right? So. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of uncanny. I mean, and I'll tell you a funny story. I started studying populism in the late 1980s. I was a graduate student in history, and uh, I was fascinated by this movement. And I thought at the time, this is in the late 80s, so this is in the Reagan era, you know, and, you know, the Wall Street was going crazy and uh, taxes were being cut. You know, all of the sort of pieces were being put in place for the economic system that we have today. And when I was studying populism, I said, these guys were talking about the very same things that are going on today. This concentration of wealth, this, you know, monopoly power, this political corruption. But I, I am here to tell you, Kamea, it is so much worse today mm. <laughs> than it was in the 1980s. You know, the concentration of wealth, I mean, well, I mean, like there's one billionaire who's basically soaked up, not all, but, you know, in the last year, all of the gains made by the economy basically have gone into the bank account of this one guy, the owner of Amazon.com. And, the, you know, the, the, the monopoly power of Silicon Valley is so much greater than anything like John D. Rockefeller ever dreamed of. And, of course, political corruption is back and goes hand in hand with those other two things in this kind. I mean, we've legalized it. That's what Citizens United was. It's it's legalized bribery. You can pay a politician as long as you stay within certain rules. You can basically pay a politician to do what you want. It's incredible. And so, yeah, we're right back to where we were. But uh, we've also made populism into a dirty word. We've cut off our own past, you know, so that we can't even think about it anymore. So you mentioned that the early movement didn't last very long. Where and from who did the backlash against populism begin? Might be quite obvious, but... <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, it's none of this is obvious. Uh, people don't know the story. But it, it started in, it sort of burst on the scene in the year 1890 
in uh, state legislative elections in Kansas, and the populists took over the state legislature. They came out of nowhere. No one had uh, suspected that anything like this could happen. And then it spread. It was all over the Great Plains in the West, all over the South, and all over the uh, all over the Far West, like California and stuff like that. And it had uh, different degrees of success in different places, but it's the last successful third party movement. And when I say successful, I mean they elected governors and um, senators and members of Congress and right down to you know mayors and that sort of thing. They had newspapers in every small town. The only part of America where they didn't have any impact at all was in the in the Northeast, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, that kind of place. Anyhow, so they they were going along and they. Their demands made, as you might expect, the sort of economic powers that were, meaning corporations, you know, railroads, the people who owned America, the demands of populism made these people real angry. <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't have a, a lot of tolerance for a movement like this. And they, they denounced populism in a, in a pretty remarkable way. And just to, to make a long story very short, in 1896 was a presidential election year and the Democratic Party basically endorsed one of the big principles of populism. The Democratic Party came around and stole one of their their biggest issue from them. Their issue was it had to do with the currency. The U.S. was on what was called the gold standard back in those days. And this was um, it was a built in handicap for farmers, anybody who borrowed money. And so the populists had been saying we have to get off the gold standard. And uh, the gold standard was, of course, the great pillar of the global economy. And so the experts of the day laughed at them and called them names for being against the gold standard. Well, in 1896, amazingly enough, the Democratic Party meets for their convention, and it's a stormy convention with a lot of, you know, argument. Back in those days, political conventions were a very big deal. And the Democrats come out of their convention saying, we're against the gold standard also. And they nominate this guy, William Jennings Bryan, who's 36 years old, unheard, you know, this guy, nobody's ever heard of him before. He's a first-term congressman from Nebraska. They nominate this guy for president on the strength of a speech that he gives against the gold standard, okay? And the populists say, all right, we'll get on board with the, with you. I mean, you, you, William Jennings Bryan, he's not there with us on all of our other issues, like the anti-monopoly stuff and the votes for women stuff. You know, the, they had a whole bunch of reform issues, and he wasn't with them on, on the other ones, but he was with them on this big one. And so they said, okay, we'll get on board and we'll endorse him also. And when they did this, the sort of elite of America, the establishment of this country went a little berserk and convinced themselves in this kind of amazing wave of hysteria, convinced themselves that they were facing a kind of French Revolution scenario and that they had to do anything in their power to to uh, to put Brian down to suppress this this would be you know French revolution and uh, I went back for the book and looked at what they what they the names that they called him and that they called his followers and it's 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 absolutely fascinating they said they were anti he and his friends were anti-intellectual he was a demagogue he was a spellbinder he was himself mentally ill the new york times did a whole series about how he was paranoid you know they had a psychologist who attested to it right on down the list 
all of the sort of things that, you know, they said his followers were hayseeds, you know, they were rubes, they were, these were people from, you know, farmers, the lowest rank of society. They had no business telling the well-educated what to do. Right down the list. All the things that, that people use the word populism to describe today. Of course, they, it, none of it was true. You know, William Jennings Bryan was not mentally ill. Uh, he wasn't really a demagogue. Yes, farmers were a low are, are a low ranking group in society, but their ideas weren't stupid. You know, and they, it's a democracy; they have as much right to express their ideas as anybody else. But nevertheless, they managed to defeat uh, Brian using these methods and a whole lot of other things. You know, denouncing him in this kind of hysterical way, and also using every trick in the nineteenth century book to cheat him. And they did, and they beat him. And what's funny is that the, the term that they used to describe Brianism was populism. So all those characteristics that I just listed, they, they called that populism. And that definition of the word is the one that we use today, that one that was used by like the East Coast newspapers in 1896, mm. totally unfairly and totally without justification to denounce this guy, William Jennings Bryan. For whatever reason, a lot of liberals today generally see the Democratic Party as the one that stands for social justice, the one that cares about the working people, the poor, and the people who have been marginalized. But as you've said, in the 60s and 70s, I believe there was a deliberate effort by the party to turn against the working class and to solidify their stance as a party for the educated elite. Can you talk more about when that turn happened and the consequences of that from then to the present day that may have even laid the groundwork for somebody like Trump to be able to rise to power. Yeah, it's kind of a an awful story, but it's one that's I think should be very familiar to to people nowadays. So when I was young, the Democratic Party was uh, I'm 55 years old, but when I was younger, the Democratic Party was very closely identified with organized labor and with the sort of aspirations of working class people. That's just who they were. They talked about it constantly. But beginning in the sort of Vietnam War era, the Democratic Party started having, a, you know, went into a kind of civil war with different factions pulling the party in different directions. And if you go back and read the literature from those debates that they were having in the 1970s, the people who came out on top were always saying, you know, the Democratic Party has to put its days as a party of working people. It has to put that behind it. We have to leave that behind us and we have to reach out to new groups, new, more enlightened constituencies. And specifically, they meant highly educated and more affluent white collar people. And they were saying this, you know, by 1971, there was a famous book. Well, not famous. I'm trying to make it famous. But there's a book that came out in 1971 where a Democratic Party, what would you call him, sort of a you know, an important figure in the Democratic Party uh, made this argument in 1971, you know, that we've got to put our days as a spokesman for the working class behind us. And we have to reach out to these new enlightened people. And this was all because of the Vietnam War. A lot of the unions had supported the Vietnam War, the leadership of the unions, I mean, had supported the Vietnam War because it was, um, they were trying to be loyal to President Johnson and they thought they were doing the right thing. By the early 70s, that was no longer a sort of acceptable position. And that's so everything unfolded in this way. 
And all through the 1970s, you have these different reform factions in the Democratic Party coming up, and they're all saying the same thing with slightly different sort of emphasis. Uh, you know that we have to become the party of uh, of highly educated white collar people because they are better people. You know they're they're so enlightened and all this crap basically. And so you get up to the uh, Bill Clinton basically comes out of this movement, becomes president in the nineties, and proceeds to put this into effect and shifts the party pretty far to the right sort of achieves a lot of the dreams that, you know, legislative things that Ronald Reagan wanted to do. Because this this new faction in the Democratic Party that's that's taken over the party, they don't really believe in the things that we that 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 were historically associated with the Democratic Party. They do believe, however, in this sort of idea of market forces, deregulation, keep taxes low. They basically agree with the Reagan revolution. And so you have Bill Clinton who uh, deregulates Wall Street and who, uh, what are some of his other great achievements, deregulates uh, radio, gets Ronald Reagan's famous trade agreement past NAFTA. This was the first of the modern day trade agreements. And uh, the Republicans had not been able to get it through Congress themselves, but Clinton is able to. He also at the same time repeals welfare. This is kind of a, was a milestone in the mid-1990s. It's the only big New Deal program that's ever been repealed. And it, it was done by a Democratic president, uh, Bill Clinton. And he does that and this sort of mass incarceration program where they're just throwing people in prison for really long periods of time for minor drug offenses. So you see what I'm getting at here. There's liberation for certain people, bankers, you know, industry, that certain kinds of industry. And then at the same time, this kind of crackdown on the poor. And that's the modern Democratic Party. And Bill Clinton is regarded as a great success among Democrats because he got these things done. And also because he engineered a kind of rapprochement between the party and Wall Street. And so by the end of his term, you know, Wall Street, when I was young, was a staunchly Republican place. There was no stronger supporter of Ronald Reagan than Wall Street. But by the end of his term, Bill Clinton has managed to become kind of the toast of Wall Street, and they're donating a lot of money to Democrats now. And by the time Barack Obama comes along, Obama is able to outraise his Republican rival on Wall Street. Joe Biden just did the same thing, Hillary Clinton the same. They've also become extraordinarily friendly with Silicon Valley, which also, when I was young, Silicon Valley was known as this intensely libertarian industry. Again, very, very deeply Republican. But today they're identified with the Democrats. And so the Democratic Party has completely changed who they are. And you can see this now in the sort of results, just this election, just a few um, you know, just a short while ago, if you look at these, the sort of wealthiest counties in America, Joe Biden carried nearly all of them, these sort of wealthy suburban counties. And these were places that not all that long ago were very Republican. The county I grew up in, Johnson County, Kansas, it's the white collar suburbs of Kansas City, when I was young, was one of the most Republican places in America. Hadn't voted for a Democrat since Woodrow Wilson. Well, they voted for Biden. This is happening all over America, by the way. So this is this this kind of incredible shift that is underway. And then meanwhile, you have Trumpism. But I'll stop there. You know, we can we can talk about this more <laughs> if you want. 
So I guess who has been left behind as the Democratic Party made this shift is, of course, the working class, whose interests are largely fundamentally at odds with, for example, Wall Street and all the big industries. So with all this happening in the background, when we stop at explaining, for example, Trump supporters as merely people who share his character values of being racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, <laughs> etc., and this yeah. is what the dominant standard explanation for what happened in 2016, especially from talking heads on the left was, through your understanding of populism, who it speaks to and why, what do people miss out on with this sort of identity-focused interpretation when trying to understand what is really going on in this country? Well, it's a it's a problem because I often think, I mean, look, there's a lot of truth to it. Trump is clearly a bigot in my view. And he says, he says things that are, uh, would have, I mean, were considered totally flatly unacceptable before he came along, before he was on the scene. And that is, for me, that is totally reprehensible and loathsome. However, I, I don't make the mistake of saying because Trump does these reprehensible and loathsome things, even though they're so outrageous, and for someone like me, that's the first thing you notice about him, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's why everybody who voted for him is voting for him. I mean, I know, we all know Trump voters personally, and um, they have all sorts of different reasons for supporting him. I mean, one of the, some of the ones I know are like, they're really into the tax cuts. They really liked those tax cuts. But there's, uh, you know, there's lots of other reasons for supporting him too. But you're exactly right when you say that the pundit core um, was sort of determined to understand him as a as a one note candidate, and that note was racism. That that's that was his only the only selling point that he had, and therefore anybody who voted for him was 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 motivated strictly by by racism. And I, that's very that's a comforting view if you are on the other side. But it's also it's a problematic view because it's it's first of all, it's not correct. You know, people be people do things for all sorts of different reasons. And we'll talk about some of those reasons in a minute. But it also tends to be insulting to a lot of people who, you know, who did support him for other reasons and who don't think that they're bad people and who also who don't think that they're particularly racist people. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about you know, they're all of the, the, the famous white working class voters who have changed sides slowly but surely from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, sort of beginning in the 70s when the Democrats decided that they didn't want to be a party of organized labor anymore, that they wanted to be this other thing, this sort of coming together of the enlightened and that sort of thing. And these people found that the Democratic Party wasn't really interested in their concerns anymore. And here comes Donald Trump. And as we all know, he made, uh, in addition to being a kind of racist jerk, he also did a kind of incredible outreach 
on working class issues. Incredible for a Republican, I mean. You uh, you go back and look at some of the speeches he used to give in 2016, and he said similar things in 2020. But um, in 2016, talking about the bad trade agreements that Bill Clinton had signed off on and that uh, Barack Obama had signed off on, this was a very clever move for a Republican to do this. And lots of people went with him for that issue or for other similar related issues like the opioid epidemic, which is if you go to a place like Ohio or Missouri, this is completely out of control. People are dying from it all the time. And Trump seemed to really care about that. So these are important things. Now, all that said, I mean, the guy was, turned out to be a terrible, I mean, as anybody could have told you in 2016, he turned out to be a complete incompetent. And when faced with a real challenge, you know, the COVID pandemic, he completely bungled it and got elected, you know, got, got tossed out of office. But that's, I think that's the, that's the story of Trump. And the important thing to take away from this is that Trumpism is not going to, you know, he's gone now, but Trumpism is not going to disappear quite so easily. I think it's going to be with us for a long time. Yeah. What I've come to see is that people have different top priority issues and different parts of our identities matter more depending on our circumstance. And for most people whose rural town jobs opportunities maybe are being crushed by monopolizing powers across all sectors or horrible trade agreements, their identity of their class likely matters more than their identity of being even non-white or a member of the LGBTQ community. So they may not be able to prioritize cultural and environmental issues if they can't even feel secure about being able to feed their own families. Oh, so yeah. They may that's, oh, that's exa you're exactly right. So when it comes right down to it, people are always going to vote for the, what, what we call kitchen table issues, you know, their, their economic circumstances. And it's not like Trump did anything great for these people. But in 2016, he sure talked like he was going to do something great for right. them. I mean, he was good that's, at marketing that's the himself. whole idea. Yes. Yeah. He, he spoke the language of, I guess, what would appeal to populists, but he didn't actually follow through on those things. But Yes. So I have a lot of problems with people calling him a populist because, I mean, what they mean by that is he's, he's kind of, he's unauthorized. He's from outside, outside of Washington. He's not a career politician. And, and he talks, you know, in a kind of a rough hewn way. And there's also, you know, he's, he, he tried to market himself as a reformer. But aside from that, no, the populists were not bigots. That was not their big selling point. That's not what they were about. The populists, you know, they didn't get into office and cut taxes. They did the opposite. They were Their whole idea was to, to start an income tax. By the way, this was regarded as incredibly shocking in the 1890s to impose an income tax on the rich. This was supposed to be class war. Trump did the opposite. You know, Trump cut taxes. Do you want to hear a funny um, Trump story? about his, uh, the, why he's not a populist. For the populists, getting America off the gold standard was the most important issue. Trump just appointed a woman uh, sometime last year, I should say, to the uh, board of the Federal Reserve Bank in Washington who wants to put America back on the gold standard. Mm. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the most unpopulist thing you can imagine. Right. Nevertheless, you know, he did sort of uh, appeal to these people's imagination. I guess because of all the nuance of people's identities and what people might prioritize differently depending on their circumstances, 
There are always, for example, pro-life people or white supremacists even that vote blue, just as there are LGBTQ members who vote red. And in fact, in this past election, compared to 2016, support for Trump among LGBTQ plus members actually, I think, nearly doubled. And curiously, the really? only- Really? I did not know that. Yeah, That's amazing. Curiously, the only group that actually, compared to 2016, decreased in support for Trump was white men. And every yeah. other ethnic, racial group, and white women increased support for Trump relative to 2016. First of all, this goes against the liberal explanations of what is happening. And second of all, I think this comparison between 2016 and 2020 is important because it helps us to capture what is actively happening as opposed to just having one absolute number, one point in time. So my question with all of this said is, should the U.S. population really be understood as red versus blue? Or is there really a deeper way people are wanting to be grouped that can speak more deeply to their shared struggles, especially accounting for the roughly one third or more of the population that usually sit out on elections altogether? Well, that is, uh, yeah, you said it there. I mean, that is exactly right. The two-party system is is deeply unsatisfying, I think, to most people. I mean, I'm a, you know, even people who are really partisan for one side or the other are are pretty disgusted with their team. We all know about the the high-profile Republicans who are sick of the Republican Party because they are they were much in the media over the last four years, but. I know a lot of people that voted for Bernie Sanders and they, you know, it was a very popular presidential candidate and they are just so sick of the Democratic Party. I mean, I talk to people every day who are so sick of the Democratic Party and um, the way it ignores their issues and their concerns. And the Democrats used to have a saying, they were pretty open about this. They used to have a saying, they'd, you know, talking about uh, different elements of the Democratic coalition, they'd say, well, you know, we don't really have to do anything for this group, whatever it is, because they have nowhere else to go. Now, just think about that, how frustrating that is. And, uh, you know, that they, you, you, you're expected to go out and work hard for whoever, you know, political candidate, give money to their to their campaign, vote for them on election day. And all the while, they're saying that they're not going to do anything for you because you, you know, you have nowhere else to go. That's that's a disgusting system. And with this sort of brings us back to populism in a way, because it was the last third, the last successful third party movement, you know, that challenged the two major parties. And in the 19th century, that happened quite a bit. You know, the third party movements would crop up and they would they'd challenge the two. Usually they were left wing parties. But you think of the Republican Party, which started as a third party when it was all about the Whigs versus the Democrats. And then here come the Republicans. What third parties used to do is is they would knock the system back into, you know, make it responsive again when the two parties had sort of come to agreement on not talking about certain issues or coming to consensus on this or that. A third party would come and sort of shake things up a little bit. We totally need that to happen these days. Something has to happen to knock the Democrats out of their, you know, the Republicans had Trumpism, which sort of tore their party apart. The Democrats haven't had any similar challenge to kind of wake them up from their sleepwalking. You know, they're like uh, Joe Biden is just basically getting the Obama crew back together again. And this is a crew that we all had great hope for in 2008, but by 2000 and 15, you know, that hope had clearly drained away. These were people that, that, that were not interested in getting important things, getting big things done. And now we're just going to do that again. You don't know. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) Right. 
Not a lot of people do not want to go back to normal because normal was not working for too many people. And so, of course, a lot of people are waking up to the fact that we can't just continue on legitimizing this forever lesser of evils political race. But at the same time, a lot of people feel helpless because they don't know any alternative path forward. And many also say that a third party vote is a wasted vote and voters shame people who believe that we can do better by maybe empowering a third party. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on the potential for a third party to be empowered to make a meaningful difference. And also your thoughts on the currently growing movement for a people's party that's occurring. Well, uh, look, in theory, I think it's a great idea because of what I just said, that it, it, we look back in our own history and you can see that third parties are are, are necessary and they they weren't necessarily cranks. I mean, some of them were, but they they had an important role that they would play, which is to introduce an issue or a set of issues that were being ignored by the, by the two main parties. That's important. However, once uh, populism was dead, the two main parties took all of these steps to make sure that it would never happen again. They decided that, you know, they, they didn't want to have to put up with a challenge like that. And, you, you know, I mean, the steps they took range from the dreadful so in the South, where populism had been strong, they uh, disenfranchised black voters and a whole lot of poor whites as well. You know, they just took the vote away from people, which was uh, it's kind of an extreme, you know, an outrageous extreme measure that that's always been, you know, we look back in, in history, this is one of the worst moments of American history that they did that. They did it to kill populism. Another thing they did was, uh, and, this, and that's, that was undone eventually in the 1960s, you know, when we had the Civil Rights Acts. But the uh, the other thing is, in, in nearly every state, the techniques that populism used to use, they made them illegal. And there's not any good reason for it, they just did. Uh, one of the, the technique that I'm referring to is called fusion. So it, when you have three parties in a system like ours, when you have three parties, what always happens is two of them in a state, say, you know, a state where there's you know, the Republicans, Democrats, and the populists, like Kansas, that two of them will gang up on the third one. So the Republicans were the dominant party in Kansas. And so the populists would gang up with the local Democrats and in this way would 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 beat the, the Republicans. And they did this again and again and again. And in the, in the South, in, in the state of North Carolina, the Democrats were the dominant party. And so the uh, populists ganged up with the local Republicans and beat them that way. Uh, anyhow, this was called fusionism or just fusion. And once the populists were beaten, they made this illegal. <laughs> you know, there's no reason for it. But look, that's how third parties get things done is, is, through, is through fusion. And what this has had the effect of doing is it's made it very, very difficult to build third parties any longer. I mean, you have people like Ross Perot, you know, who ran at the national level, but uh, populism was a real third party, meaning they had, you know, they were contesting offices right down to the local alderman, stuff like that, the mayor in, in a small town, you know, everywhere. And we haven't seen another party like that uh, nationally for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are a few exceptions. Um, Wisconsin had the Progressive Party. Minnesota had the Farmer Labor Party. You know, there, there are a few things here and there. But nationally, it's been, we haven't seen something like that again. I think we could use it, but I'm afraid these anti-fusion rules make it very difficult. Yeah. So basically, there have been steps actively taken to make the system 
to make it harder for third parties to gain power yeah, within the exactly. system. Exactly. Yes. Now then, and the, but then there's this other model, which is uh, the, you know Bernie Sanders model or Donald Trump's model, if you will, where you you go into the into the main major party and you try to uh, you know you try to disrupt it. And Trump succeeded. Sanders did not succeed, but he came close. He came real close. But Trump did it. Now, one of the reasons Trump was able to do it is Trump is, you know, personally a billionaire. And so he was a, he had this bottomless barrel of money that he could spend. Not most people don't have that. Right. <laughs> you know? So now we have the incoming Biden presidency that basically secured their win without really offering much to the working class people who have been pushed to the brinks, especially with our accelerated wealth disparity from the pandemic. Many people on the left were well aware that ousting Trump does not mean we would be able to get the changes that we need, for example, to support quick and really drastic action on climate change or to be able to go far enough, um, fast enough on that front. At the same time, there are growing worker justice movements, growing racial justice movements, and so on. So what do you think needs to happen for these movements to converge so they can Man, wouldn't past, that be something? Yeah, so that they can basically see past this general divide of uh, white working class conservatives versus racial, social, and climate justice liberals. Because for me, that divide prevents both sides from really getting what they're more deeply wanting. Yeah, it certainly does. And and uh, you know what I've been saying all these years, and I I grow tired of saying it. I grow weary with our political uh, situation in this country, but I've pointed it out so many times. If you were to organize one party or the other, I always assumed it would be the Democrats, but maybe I'm wrong about that. If you were to organize one party or the other around class-based issues, you would immediately have an enormous majority. This is just, you know, this is just the nature of American politics. The genius of our system now is the ways in which the Republicans use these kind of wedge issues to tear pieces off of the Democratic, you know, working class coalition. And then the Democrats making their own big move to the right. And, you know, all of these, these things that these people have done. But if you were to just do this sort of straight up class approach, you a lot of those white working class voters that have been lured away to Trumpism or to the Republican Party would come back. Now, you know, there's a lot of problems with with that, but that's in general, that's the uh, that's that's the sort of the basic idea. I'd like to see that happen, but I don't know if it's going to anytime. It's if in fact I can I can assure you that it's not going to happen anytime uh, soon. So. <laughs> so especially with, of course, Biden's cabinet and leadership team so far, of course, as expected, being more aligned with corporate interests than everyday people's needs. For example, with big oil backed Cedric Richmond appointed to liaise with climate activists, a lot of people are feeling that ongoing despair, a sense of betrayal and helplessness that people in power based on their records are still more likely to keep siding with the interests of corporate corporations and those at the top. But you've also talked before about how a lot of real change doesn't come from those government offices where a few political elites gather. Rather, it comes from people building movements. So can you speak to this more to help us understand the importance of organizing and working from outside of the government? Yeah, so that, that's actually the the story of populism is the story of a mass movement of ordinary people. It was not a movement of politicians the politicians came later. They were an afterthought. It was a movement of working class people, mainly farmers, but a lot of um, industrial workers too. And if you 
study American history, you see that mass movements like populism are one of the most important ways that change has happened. If you look at the 1930s, again, you know, this is this sort of for uh, for people on the left, the 1930s is the golden you know, the golden era when we got, you know, the Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, we finally regulated Wall Street, broke up banks, regu- you know, went after monopolies of every description, regulated all kinds of different industries, uh, labor grew in, in power, you know, and there were all of these uh, environmental programs as well, the very first, I guess not the very first environmental programs, but all, you know, the the like the Civilian Conservation Corps, building the national parks, you know, planting trees in rural America, this kind of thing, as a reaction to the Dust Bowl and the environmental catastrophe of those days. Well, why did that happen? It didn't just happen because Franklin Roosevelt was a great guy. It also happened because you had the labor movement in the streets growing by leaps and bounds. You also had farmer protest movements. You had these mass movements in the streets that makes for change. The civil rights movement is, an, you know, is another fantastic example of that. This is not the great civil rights acts of the 1960s that I referred to before. They didn't happen because Lyndon Johnson was a, was a, was a really good guy. I mean, he was, right? But that wasn't enough. They happened because you had millions and millions of ordinary people organizing and marching and protesting. So the, the point that I keep coming back to, and for some, by the way, for some historians, this is the point of populism is that mass movements work. Mass movements are what democracy is all about. It's when people really understand the, the potential of democracy. Now, that we're in a kind of period now where a, a lot of people fear and hate and despise mass movements of ordinary Americans. You know, this is a very common sentiment. I call it anti-populism. You come across it all the time. But I think that that is, uh, I'm very hopeful about, about such movements. And you mentioned earlier all the different sort of, uh, well, from Black Lives Matter to all of the, you know, the, the, the protests about, about student indebtedness, all the different worker protests that are out there. It would be magnificent if these things came together. You would start seeing all kinds of change. You would start seeing all kinds of results. The politicians are a lagging indicator. You know, it's the, it's the social movement that gets the goods. on the magazine paint me like a debutante you're prom queen pretty little it girl yeah that's me I could be the it girl can't you see I could be the face on the magazine paint me like a debutante you're prom queen pretty little it girl yeah that's me What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? So I've been reading this guy, Barry Lynn. He's a friend of mine and he writes these books about uh, monopolies. And I really did not, you know, we've, we've, we've sort of lost track of the great American tradition of anti-monopoly. It's really fun once you start digging into it. To, to, I mean, fun, enlightening. And you also see how far we've fallen, you know. We need to get some 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 of that back into our, our political bloodstream. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? It's It's been really hard. What do I tell myself? Oh, God. So the thing is that I'm ultimately, I'm a writer before I'm anything else. And I am uh, motivated by 
by doing a good job, by writing something uh, wonderful, by you know, by putting putting a, a paragraph together that will make people's you know hair stand on end. That's what <laughs> I want to do. Hmm. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment, if anything? I know it's a tough time. That's. I, I'm sorry. I might have to. Pa- wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be terrible if I passed on that one? Uh, <laughs> I, I. I look. I was very uh, inspired by Black Lives Matter. That you know that the problem is I became kind of allergic to hope after after the Obama years. You know, I was very very uh, uh, idealistic about Barack Obama in 08, and I sort of overdosed on hope if you will. (laughs) So so I've tried to stay away from it. Yeah. So hopefully we can transform our outrage into something that can be really meaningful. Something constructive. Yeah. I would like to see that. Yeah. Green Dreamer, we are wrapping up here, but you can find Thomas's book, The People Know, and his numerous other books on his website at tcfrank.com. And he's also on Twitter at thomasfrankunderscroll. Thomas, we appreciate you sharing your wealth of knowledge on populism with us. Thank you so much for joining us here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I would say, uh, um, you know, this country is is ultimately about us. It's about we the people. And that's what the populists understood. And that's what we need to recapture today, that it's not about a bunch of politicians in Washington. It's about us. And we we shape it. We make it what it is. Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. If our show has moved or inspired you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. That is what makes this show and our diverse range of topics explored that are often left out of mainstream conversations possible. So thank you so much to all of our past and current patrons. Today's intermission song featured is The It Girl by Ray Zaragoza. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.